Welcome into Chit Chat Money. My name is Brett Schaefer, and I'm joined as always by Ryan Henderson. This is Thursday, and if you're a longtime listener or consistent listener, you'll notice that usually Ryan does these intros, but today he has his backup microphone. So we're trying to make it as high as quality as possible. So I'm going to be doing this. Uh, today we have two guests on talking Texas Instruments. It is Andrew and Dave from the Investing for Beginners podcast. We actually just did a little bit of a cross, a little switcheroo. We went on theirs too, and which will be out as the time you're uh, listening to this. As this is out, theirs will be out as well. We have a link to their show notes again. As their title says, it is an Investing for Beginners podcast. So if you're new to learning about investing, that's a perfect show for you. Link will be in the show notes. We're talking Texas Instruments. Uh, we've had... We did a show on them, I think about two years back or a little while back. I can't really remember, but it's a perfect time to update them. We're doing, they have a major capital expenditures, you know, boost here. That's a really big bet from them. They have trends from the EV industry. It's a fascinating company that has put up really solid returns for investors over the long term. Ryan, anything to add before we kick it off to the interview? No, I think Andrew, um, Andrew and Dave do a really good job simplifying things. I think that's why their show is so popular for beginners is because they make things, sounds, make things sound very simple, um, even complex topics. And Andrew has a background in uh, electrical engineering. So he's got some experience in the semiconductor industry as well, which was nice to hear uh, him explain some of the more complex topics uh, as well. All right. Yeah, this is a perfect interview. I learned a lot. I think any listener will as well. Let me try to copy Ryan's intro here. Without further ado, here's our interview with Andrew and Dave. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right. Welcome in, everyone. My name is Brett Schaefer. I am the doing the intro today because Ryan has his backup mic, so we're Gonna have him talk as little as possible, but we have our friends from the Investing for Beginners podcast, Dave Ahern and Andrew Sather. I made sure we practiced beforehand, so I made sure to get that right. We're talking Texas Instruments today. So guys, welcome to the show. And maybe I'll ask both of you, what got you interested in Texas Instruments? Well, thank you, uh, Brett and Ryan. We appreciate it. Even though Ryan's not gonna be talking much, we're still glad he's here with us today. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I got interested in Texas Instruments because Andrew got interested in it. Uh, he was the first one of the two of us that discovered the company. And he uh, he recommended it for his value spotlight investment service. And after reading his write-up and talking through the investment with him, I was uh, I was intrigued. And so I ended up doing my own research and kind of fell in love with the company as well. So that's kind of how I found it. Uh, Andrew, do you want to tell him how you found it? Well, I actually went to school as an electrical engineer and I worked at three different semiconductor companies. One company I worked at twice. Ironically, I've only bought one of those companies out of the three I've worked for, even though they're all great companies. Um, so 
you know, I've always been like a self-taught investor. Um, but for whatever reason, when it came to semiconductor companies, I don't know why I held off for so long. Um, I should have bought probably a lot more semiconductors than I did. Um, but Texas Instruments is one of those where I think from an investing standpoint, it's a lot easier to understand than someone that's a high flyer like AMD or NVIDIA. Um, those businesses are starting to mature a little bit more, but Texas Instruments is definitely a lot more matured. And so their financials remind you of a lot of kind of industrial stocks more so than even semiconductor companies. And when you start to dig into the business model, the competitive advantages also can be a little more similar and just a little less techy. Um, and so I think that's what drew me to the company most. And um, the more the more I learned about it, the more I got excited about it. All right. And I will be chiming in here uh, occasionally, so I'm not totally off the podcast. But uh, let's let's maybe start with the basics. You mentioned the competitive advantages and all that. So we'll, we'll get to that. But why don't we start with what Texas Instruments actually does? So, you know, what products do they sell and what are their primary end markets that they're serving? And it's not calculators anymore. It's not calculators. Uh, they do analog semiconductors. Think about the, the way I like to explain it to people who aren't very techy is like, if if we have eyes and ears and a brain, there are semiconductors that do the same thing in the real world. And those are analog. And so Texas Instruments does analog. And instead of ones and zeros, they're processing wave functions or processing audio visual inputs and, and turning that into something a computer can understand. So the the end markets can be wide ranging because anything that needs to talk to a computer and eventually end up in computer code will probably touch an analog semiconductor chip. Okay. And maybe a quick follow-up before we get into the details of their competitive landscape here. What are the core ed markets? I know a lot of people talk about industrials, electric vehicles, I guess automotive in general, but what are the most important ones you think, I guess either you guys can answer that are driving the business today? Um, they they sell 80,000 products. So where should we start? Well, yeah, okay. Uh, maybe I should. <laughs> no, what I mean, like, what no, industries? I, I, yeah, I'm yeah. making a joke for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anywhere between, uh, you kind of mentioned some of it. Um, Factory and building automation and control, grid infrastructure, automotive, infotainment, and safety. The company segments some of that as industrial automotive. They have a electronic segment, and you could maybe fill in the blanks of any I'm missing, Dave. Uh, communications and enterprise systems are kind of the last two. Those are those are much smaller portions of it. Right. And they're going to, yeah. So I guess as anyone can, you know, listening here understands how big the industrial base is, how big, you know, the automotive market is. They're really touching so many parts of every different industry. Now, when people talk about them, I guess when people have kind of a generalist overview, they kind of, they know that Texas Instruments, if anything, is not competing with the Samsungs and the Taiwan Semis and the Intels for the high, uh, highly advanced stuff, the cutting edge three nanometer stuff. It's less technically intensive and, you know, they have this industrial analog um, automotive bent. Who are the main competitors in that space? Or, or 
I know people talk about the patent advantage they have, but what does the competitive landscape look like? And then I think after we can talk about maybe the competitive advantages here. Uh, I, I guess I could start just giving you when I when I originally wrote my first recommendation for this company, I called them the Big Five. I don't know why I dubbed it that. I mean, it, I, I use Big Three and Big Four a lot, so why not use Big Five? So it's if you include Texas Instruments, Texas Instruments, Analog Devices, Infineon, ST Micro, and NXP. What makes it interesting is each of these companies might compete with one segment of Texas Instruments, but not another. So you do have this tangled mess of industries and segments that Texas Instruments, for example, competes with analog devices in three of Texas Instruments segments. So depending on how the other companies want to define their segments, it's not always apples to apples, but um, in general, those would be the biggest big five, if you will. Okay. And then we're going to talk, you know, the financials today, we're going to talk its future growth potential management, and we'll definitely hit the new CapEx or maybe, I don't know how new it is, but the CapEx projections, stuff like that. But the key for a lot of investments from, I know from all four of us is what competitive advantage does this company have? You mentioned that they have a high margin of safety. They're, um, yeah, they just have a bunch of advantages. So what what do you think those are? And can you explain that to the listeners? I feel like they have several. Maybe Dave, you want to take the first hack? Yeah, I, I think probably the first thing that really jumps out to me is the economies of scale and how big they are. And Andrew mentioned jokingly 80,000 products, but that's not a joke. They really have 80,000 plus products. And the I guess the biggest advantage they have with those compared to other companies is those products have a shelf life of almost forever. And so even though the inventory levels may get higher for Texas Instruments compared to other semiconductors, it's not a concern because they are going to sell them and it doesn't, they aren't going to go bad. They, they don't have a shelf life like some of the more cutting edge chips do that they they run out of favor and texas instruments doesn't have that doesn't have that worry and because they're in so many different types of vehicles and uses they get distributed all over the world and china is actually one of their bigger markets which sometimes concerns me a little bit but it it's it's interesting that they have so much they they deliver a lot of value across a lot of different categories and so even though for example the union auto workers strike right now it could impair their automotive uh, division potentially for a period of time or it may not but because of the nature of their business but they have so much other i guess you know tentacles out there that it allows them to kind of withstand some of those ebbs and flows they go through cycles just like this the semiconductor industry does but I don't feel like it's quite as severe as maybe let's say AMD would be, for example. Uh, just to piggyback on that economies of scale thing, when I think of a company like Costco and the way that they can, I don't want to say demand, that sounds a little hostile, but they can negotiate more from their suppliers in the same way Texas Instruments can run its business in a different way than its peers have to do so. So as an example, um, around two thirds of their revenue is direct to consumer or direct to customer. 
So they'll go to direct to the OEM manufacturer instead of using a distributor middleman like Aero Electronics or one of the other large distributors. Um, and that can be a big advantage. You just cut you cut the middleman out. And the more of those relationships that Texas Instruments can create, the more that they can take some of that margin for themselves without having to deal with the distributors, which also can come with some of its own disadvantages. So I think there are a lot of ways that the economies of scale plays out. And I think the distributor, the distributor versus direct model is a very tangible thing to me where I can say, wow, this makes a lot of sense. They're using their scale and it helps them create this kind of a sustainability that may or may not be present. And to Dave's point, give it a little bit less cyclicality than you might see with a semiconductor company that maybe doesn't have their own fab or has to rely on distributor relationships. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. All right, so I have two follow-ups for each of those, uh, but I think the first one here is the direct sales on TI.com, as I think is what it's called. That's grown. I was really surprised to see how much that has grown. Is that going to further, you think, give them that advantage from going direct to consumer? Does that matter at all? Because I know they highlight that a lot for investors. They do. I, I mean, the the optimist in me wants to say, yeah, of course, it, it totally will. Then it's interesting Another, I think, detail that's pertinent to kind of this whole discussion is what they sell is generally really low. I mean, I don't want to say pennies, but it's not big on a per unit basis. But so when 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 customers are price shopping, it's not necessarily let me get the very, very best price that I can get. Maybe they want to get a large volume and, and make sure that I know that this is going to ship in time. And so to me, that actually lends more credence to the direct model because when you're direct, you have more control of that whole supply chain. And you, if customers are wanting that convenience and, and the timeliness and all of the things that a direct model can provide in a better way than maybe using middlemen, I think it would it would only strengthen and become something that feeds on itself. But you know, it's no guarantee, like anything else in investing and business. Um, but it is something that does make them unique. Are there big switching costs from the customer's point of view? Like, if I'm one of the OEMs, is it hard for me to say I'm going to ditch Texas Instruments and and go with this new provider or? I don't know. How does it work for the customer's end? 
I'll start one of the things for them. And again, another thing that makes Texas Instruments different is they have contracts that can be seven years, 10 years, or even longer than that. And so just embedded in some of these purchase order contracts is a recurring nature that would make it harder to switch. It's hard to give a blanket statement because of how many customers... I mentioned 80,000 products. There's also over 100,000 customers. And so it's it's hard to say that, yeah, you know, this is the stickiest product out there. And so I guess I can't give you a, a 100% answer on that part. Dave, do you have anything to add there? No, I, I think that's probably the best way to, because of the large amount of customers that they have and the large amount of product, products they have, I don't know that there's necessarily switching costs beyond the the contracts that Andrew was talking about. There may be there may be some inherent production issues. You know, you think about a just think about a car car assembly line. I don't know how I've never worked in those lines, but I would imagine changing out the parts and how you different parts that you use for those. I can't imagine that's like super easy to do. And so there there might be some you know, we've been buying it from Texas Instruments for the last 27 years. Why are we going to break? Why are we going to stop now? There's probably a, there's probably a fair amount of that going on. Um, the other, I think, the other advantage that Texas Instruments has is because they have so many products and because they can build up an inventory and hold it for a while. I think that makes it easier for their customers to know that if they do need the product, they can go to Texas Instruments. So like Andrew was saying earlier, the competition between the different segments that Texas Instruments operates in, they probably have a bit of an advantage in that, that they they know that if ADI runs out of the product, they can go to Texas Instruments and get it pretty easily. So that probably gives them another advantage as well. Right. That's a good point. I They do highlight the fact that they're always going to have or try to, at least maybe during mm-hmm. the pandemic, they got away from it them because of the supply chain stuff, but that's out of their control. But they're always going to have the parts on hand if you want them. To Before we move on to the financials, I just wanted to highlight maybe, and just correct me if this is wrong, where the reason that Texas Instruments can be so profitable and why they have this low capital intensity, but a long shelf life for all their instruments is that when a company, say a random manufacturing company has in their factory a sensor that needs a te- Texas Instruments part, eventually after five, 10 years or whatever the shelf life is, it's going to break it or it's going to, you know, run out, right? It's going to stop working. Mm -hmm. And then they need the same part to go in. And it's not really going to change that much over the years as compared to NVIDIA, which is working on all these crazy, you know, as we all know, like there's this new market that pops up with AI. Is that the best way to put it? While Texas Instruments, you know, or NVIDIA is going to be selling or whatever the most advanced stuff is, is going to change throughout the decades where Texans instruments might be selling the same part to a factory that they were in 1990. I think yeah. that's fair. Yeah, yeah okay. I think that's fair. That's fair. Okay. I, I, if, you know, I, this is obviously not the correct visual, but sometimes the way I think of it is their inventory is like going into a wine cellar and then walking farther and farther and farther back into the wine cellar. And soon you're back into the wines from 1970s and it's still the same wine and, but it's got cobwebs on it and it's a little dusty and whatnot. I know it's not like that at Texas Instruments, but that's kind of the visual I have. And I, that's, I, I think that that helps me understand, okay, that, you know, they may be sitting on this part for a while, but it is some to your point, Brett, that at some point it's going to wear out and they can, they know they can go get it from them. 
Okay, let's walk through the financials here. How much do they do in revenue? And then what are kind of their big costs? What kind of margins do they generate? I mean, Texas Instruments really isn't a business I'm that familiar with. So curious, what are the really big kind of inputs cost-wise that go into a business like this? Uh, okay, well, I mean, last last uh, the last 12 months, they've done about 18.8 billion in revenue. Uh, which you know it's 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 a decent number, but they are down. Uh, so this this year they're down about three point nine percent, and for the last four quarters they've kind of been trending down. So twelve point nine, three point four, ten point seven, and thirteen point one respectively uh, for June of twenty twenty three. So they have been trending down in revenues over the last ten years. They've grown around four point three percent, five years three point seven, and and three years eleven point two, but. Uh, as I said, this last year has been a little bit rough. So they had they they did really well, kind of going into the pandemic and then coming out of the pandemic, they've been a bit on the struggle bus. But this is all stuff that that the management has has communicated to shareholders from the get go. They saw this coming. They saw the writing on the wall. They knew that this was coming, and they were going to start seeing some compression in the revenues. They've also been seeing compression in the margins as well. Uh, if I go to our friends here at Stratosphere, give me just a moment here, uh, their their margins have dropped a little bit. Like the gross margin uh, has dropped, uh, so has the operating margins here. Sorry, guys. Uh, so we got sixty six point three and forty five point seven. Those are both down from last year, and they're both down from twenty twenty one as well. So they've been kind of seeing a gradual decline in margins. But this is again all stuff that has been communicated uh, by management to the shareholders. They knew this was all coming. And a, a large part of this is stemming from the, the CapEx that they've been spending. The, the costs that they, that they kind of generate, really the majority of them are a mixture of R&D, sales, SG&A, and the CapEx. So those are kind of the big cost drivers that are really driving not only investment, but also, I guess, the pressure on the free cash flow as well as their margins and revenues. All right, Andrew, just, anything to add there? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, perfect. Thanks. I would just also add that something that also differentiates Texas Instruments, which we haven't touched on too much, is their integrated device manufacturer. So they not only design the chips, but also manufacture them. So if you think of a, a fabulous semiconductor company like Broadcom or Qualcomm, they don't actually produce the chips themselves. They will design it on their EDA software like Cadence and then send it to somebody like TSMC who's going to manufacture it for them. In the case of Texas Instruments, they manufacture a lot of their own chips and at a higher percentage than their peers. And so you do get added costs when it comes to that. To Dave's point about the CapEx, it takes CapEx to build a fab, open a fab, and then you have ongoing OpEx to run the fab. And of course, all the costs of goods sold that goes along with that. Um, so that is a another part of the cost structure that you won't necessarily see with other semiconductors. But I find it interesting that despite those added costs, Texas Instruments still has industry-leading gross margin and also really high operating margin especially compared to somebody like analog devices. 
This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You mentioned that CapEx and when we were doing research for the show, you can see there's been a big increase in capital expenditures over the last, I call it two years. And even on the or last earnings release, management almost uh, not bragged about it, but they highlighted it, that they're investing heavily right now. And I think management's probably the first to say this, it's a bit of a down cycle. So what do you think about their choice to invest heavily in what seems like a down cycle, does it feel risky at all? Or do you think that the demand is strong enough in the future or more predictable that it's it's the right move? Dave, you want to go first? Sure. Uh, I, I'm 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 bullish on it. I mean, the fact that they the fact that they broadcast that they were going to start doing this, um, that they were going to start investing, the biggest. I guess the biggest expenditure of the CapEx is is building out more capacity to be able to produce more. And they feel like they have the demand there that they need to do this. And so they're also expanding the 300 millimeter. So the, the discs are, they're going to be producing bigger discs, which is going to give them more efficiency in what they're producing. And I think as they continue to expand on the CapEx, you know, I, I'm, I'm bullish on the idea that they're, that they're, you know, investing into a down cycle as opposed to investing into an up cycle, because I think once they come out of this cycle, they're going to have a heck of a lot more capacity and it's just going to give them more ability to really, really grow faster. And I think that's, I mean, that's, that's what I want. And the fact that they communicated this, this isn't a surprise. It isn't like, oh my gosh, what happened? You know, I mean, they've been talking about this for quite a while now. So uh, everybody knew it was coming. And I, I do believe that the it, it's not like they're talking about creating some brand new product out of thin air. It's a lot of the same products they're already creating, just like you said, on that bigger disc to be able to build that capacity for the demand that's already there. Whether the demand evaporates in three months, I don't I don't see it evaporating in the next three, five years. So the demand's there, you gotta meet it. And I think it it would widen the moat between some of the other competitors who might rely more on outside fabs. Um, but it is a risk like anything else that they could be building and maybe people don't come. Um, but I'm not too worried about it based on the history of how the company has invested in the past and how the demand has naturally ebbed and flowed for all of semiconductors for many years. Okay, I think. Oh, one more follow up. I have a, I have a follow up on return on invested capital, but 
Dave, if you have a startup. Or no, another, that was actually what I was going to talk about. So why don't you ask a question? <laughs> perfect. Perfect. We're on the same wavelength here. Uh, so I think, you know, for any investor who's, you know, maybe first time here or looked at the company, they think, okay, CapEx is increasing. They've had really strong returns on invested capital in the past. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but for, you know, given the total returns here, given whatever, all the competitive advantages, they clearly have had good returns on invested capital. So what gives you guys confidence that that can be sustained for the next 10, 20 years into the future? Well, I, you know, I, I think for me, there, there are several things. Number one, um, this is not a new game plan for the management and uh, something that I guess we'll, we'll talk more about the management, I know. But one thing I wanted to throw out there is that the average length of term of the management is around 21 years. And Rich Templeton, who just left as the CEO, he had one gig his whole life, and that was working for Texas Instruments. So he worked for them for 42 years before he stepped down just recently. And so what they're doing right now is not something new for them. And the operations and the way that they operate, the efficiency that, that you are mentioning with the ROICs, I don't anticipate that changing much. And it doesn't appear to be changing that much. If you look at their their ROICs through through this cycle, they're still in the high 40s. And if you compare that to their competitors, like ADI is running around eight or 9% for ROIC. So that gives Texas Instruments you know, a huge leg up because they can, they can invest, they can reinvest this efficiently, even with lower revenue numbers and compressions on some of the margins, they're still able to generate those high returns, which means they really have their their costs and their their operations really dialed in and they know what they're doing. And the fact that they're tenured like that just gives me a lot of confidence that, you know, yeah, if it drops to 42% instead of 45%, I'm not going to get too excited about that because it's still, you know, way, way, way above their cost of capital, which hovers around eight, 9%. So, you know, even if it gets down to 30%, they're still killing it. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy with that. So Andrew, I'll, I'll throw, throw the ball to you, sir. I think it's an important discussion and a great question. When I look at the way that the competition has stacked up so far, I know we haven't gone super deep into it, but one of the things when you compare segment to segment, Texas Instruments has grown a little slower than some of its competitors in the different segments. But a lot of these segments or a lot of these competitors are making huge acquisitions to inject this kind of growth and try to take market share. And so what you don't see is a consistent, these companies are taking a ton of market share from Texas Instruments. And when when you talk about peers with lower ROIC, I think that's where a lot of that comes in. Um, you know, if I buy a competitor at a really high valuation, sure, I took market share, but was that a good move for the business? That's questionable. So for me, when I look at the competitive landscape and I try to paint the picture of what are all the what are all the factors here, Texas Instruments has the different structural advantages that these companies don't have. And it also, when you combine those with economies of scale, it makes it very hard for a competitor to replicate all of those things, the direct-to-consumer, the extensive in-house manufacturing, and the fact that, yes, they can they can take te- share temporarily, but if they have to do expensive acquisitions to do it, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that Texas Instruments ro- moat is eroding in any way. 
So I'm that's one of the things I watch with a lot of the companies that I'm looking at is how is how is the market shares changing? And if that changes, of course the the story will change. But until you see competitors that can match margins and sustainably take a lot of market share, I don't feel worried about the medium to long term for the company. Okay. I think anyone listening can because of some of the stuff you guys have said already can probably get the sense that this is a pretty good business. The question it seems like right now is kind of circling back to that down cycle. I think a lot of people stay away from semis because of the cyclicality of the industry. And so I know this is probably an impossible question to kind of answer, but do you guys have any context around like where are they seeing weakness right now? Do you think that's demand that will come back over time and it's kind of short term? I guess as as much as you can, what do you think of the cyclicality so far and do you think it'll last? So so let me let me try to answer it this way. Um I'm the type of crazy person to to run crazy back tests in Excel and look at macros and try to try to see what's been going on. So for example, you know, if you're if you're trying to do a DCF model on something that's super cyclical, it's just not going to do anything because the 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 results are just too varying. Um, if you backtest a lot of the other super cyclical semiconductors, especially those that are trying to compete in cutting edge, using a DCF would have been completely worthless. But if you look at Texas Instruments and you backtest their DCF. Buying when the DCF said that this company is a good value did well, like you would see other mature companies do well with. And so because of a lot of the things we've talked about today and the way that this plays like a more matured business, a DCF model does a good job of valuing the company and taking into account those cyclical swings. And so for me, cyclicality is tough and i mean it's it's a hot button everybody wants to talk about it with a lot of the different industries but if i can find a company where you buy at a cheap valuation through a dcf model over the longer term if i'm okay with the company and the moat and the management then i'm not necessarily worried about timing the very bottom of that cycle so when it came to texas instruments when i first pulled the trigger DCF look great and and that's when I went for it. Um we can also talk about some of the recent developments which I think are important, but I would highlight that with the context that if I'm looking to be a long-term investor, I'm probably not going to time the cycle perfectly. But if I'm going to take a contrarian approach and get it when everybody else think that this is a terrible time to buy it. I'll probably do well. And I think that's what makes this almost like a not semiconductor play because you can get away with that with Texas Instruments or you could not get away with that with some of the other high flyers. That's a perfect way to sum it up. Now, the most, or I guess when you lead into our Ryan, you have- I was going to say, Dave, anything to add there? No, I I think Andrew- you know, gave a, gave a really eloquent answer. I don't think I can, I can, I can add any, anything well good to that. So <laughs> I won't. Okay. All right. So the next step after 
identifying, you know, that the stock's cheap, it's going to generate a lot of cash for you as an investor is what management's going to do with that. You already talked about how essentially whenever someone looks at Texans instruments, they all fall in love. I think there's about a hundred percent hit rate about falling in love with their management team. So what makes them so great? And what is their consistent capital return strategy through both buybacks and dividends? Well, it's pretty obvious, you know, when I looked at, when I looked at their, the first time, I'll, I'll give you an example here. So the first thing I did when I started researching the company was I went to their investor relations page, which I have to say is one of the better ones out there. And the first thing you can see exactly what's important to them right away because they list their free, free cash flow per share, their dividend growth, and their share count reduction. That tells you everything you want to know about what how they think. And the first sentence that they include in here is that they are, they're running the company for us. They're running the company for shareholders. And I know a lot of people give that lip service, but when you read through all of their information, that theme keeps coming back again and again and again. And at the beginning of their 10K, they have this big section about free cash flow and how important it is to them. And that's one of the metrics that they have to measure the company. And so it's very important. And the and that all flows into dividends and share count reduction. I mean, they've reduced their share count 47% in 18 years. That's kind of redonkulous. Uh, so even if they didn't do anything else, they've been you know doing an amazing job of reducing the share count. So it's, it's pretty obvious to me, you know, they end every earnings call with this little phrase about uh, cash flow and how important it is to them. Uh, they have a capital appreciation day where they have the CFO basically take analyst questions for an hour. Uh, so they, they set themselves up a little differently than other companies. And that to me just makes it more apparent how transparent they are and how much they're really focusing on driving value for the shareholders. And that's, I mean, th- those are some things just, right along right along kind of made me fall in love with the management yeah 100 percent. all right anything else to follow up there because i do want to hit andrew you said something about you know recent developments and it kind of made me realize we forgot to talk about the electric vehicle potential i guess it's a huge industry for them i think i might be getting the numbers wrong but something like electric vehicles may have and it might just be modern vehicles in general like three to four times as much um you know intensive with semiconductors and all that sort of stuff with computer chips in them. So what do you think about the industry tailwinds, maybe specifically on electric vehicles, all dealer's choice, whoever wants to answer that one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I get, I get really excited. I finally had an opportunity to drive a Tesla. My brother got one. And if you ask other Tesla drivers, it's just a different experience. It's not drive. You're not driving a car. You're driving something else. And I think, I think people start to get used to that and it's, it's, it's interesting. I feel like this and another position I have, you, you have, you have people who are kind of betting against technology and I just don't know when that's ever been a good move. Um, if, if mankind has shown one thing is they have the ability to innovate and create things that make us spend money and that includes innovation and, and tech and all of these things. So, you know, the, the prices of cars have been jumping through the roof lately. Nobody has to, I don't have to tell anybody that, um, as, as they start to 
increase the amount of content, electronic content, like you were saying, Brett, I think it's only inevitable. Um, I guess the the other side to the argument would be, well, we have our cell phones, so why why would you need to deck out your car? And, and that's certainly true, and that's a risk. But I think something about the Tesla thing is is really convincing, and the way he's really changed the game with how we approach technology and, and cars and and the whole driving experience. So personally, I'm really bullish about automotive. I'm 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 bullish about the industrial tailwinds, but of course I could be wrong too. And luckily with a company like this, with a lot of free cash flows, you don't have to be hundred percent right to make a decent return. All right. Anything else that you guys want to hit before we hit our risks and pre-mortem segment? I think one, I guess one kind of quick thing that I'd like to throw out there is Texas Instruments kind of has this kind of stodgy, maybe outdated, I guess, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Reputation. But if you look at, if you look at what did they do and how they do it, and I went online and looked at a YouTube video of how they produce these fabs that they they create, and it was state of the art. It was like NASA high tech kind of visualizations, and I was kind of shocked. And so once I kind of really understood how high tech this company really is, I was really really more impressed with the the efficiency and the way that they do what they do. All right. Now let's hit the closing thoughts here. You know, obviously you guys are very excited about Texas Instruments. Uh, you think it's a good opportunity here, but there's always risks with any investment. So you mentioned the China stuff. I think that's pretty clear for a lot of people. If there's anything else you want to hit on that, go right ahead. But what could cause, you know, from these levels or wherever you're, uh, why would this be an underperforming investment over the next five, 10 years? I think when Dave said, you know, the stodgy reputation. I think uh, there's not, it's not the craziest idea. I mean, the revenues haven't been insane. They've, they've basically kept up with GDP over the last 10 years. So they're not knocking it out of the park when it comes to revenue growth, but what they're doing is positioning themselves as a crucial part of the economy itself. So I think the risks there is if, if the way that these, competitors have been taking share through acquisition if that if if those synergies actually do play out and that acquisition game gets more and more heated up and if they can take significant share from texas instruments then i think you have a company that goes from maybe keeping up with gdp or outperforming gdp by a couple of percentage points to maybe something that's a little bit more matured so to me the biggest risk is starting to lose market share consistently in a, at a profit rate for competitors that allows them to do that year after year after year. And so it would not kill the business because they have a great balance sheet. They have, you know, all of this free cash flow, but it would create a mature tech business, which is something you never want to see. Um, so that would be something to watch. All right. Uh, anything else guys, before we wrap things up? All right. I think that's going to do it. Uh, why don't we talk about the Investing for Beginners podcast? Because we recently, actually, I don't know what's going to come out first. We recently did a recording with you guys. I think it'll probably come out right around uh, the time this one's out. So October talk about the 2nd. show, October 2nd. Yeah, that should be very similar to this one. So go listen to that one as well. Over on their episode, we covered a myriad of things. Uh, but yeah, why don't you guys 
talk about the show, how that got started. Well, I kind of mentioned the beginning. I, I went to school as an engineer. I did not study finance at all in college. So I had to teach myself along the way. Dave and I stumbled upon each other and we created this show. And basically, as we taught ourselves, we hit record and, and tried to relay those lessons. And I think coming from people who didn't have a background, we had to um we had to learn things like dummies, basically. And it seems like that resonated. And then people started to ask questions and we started answering those. And now we answer questions very regularly. Um, we also have very insightful interviews with fabulous guests like you two. And every once in a while, we get deep into the weeds with a company like Texas Instruments or Return on Invested Capital. I think we broached that at least once and probably put the beginners to, <laughs> to sleep. But you know, we, we, we have to do it sometimes. So that's, that's kind of the gist of our show. We go twice a week and just try to... We, te- we do a lot of teaching. So um, I don't know if that came out at all today, but um, we, we tend to explain things as we go. So as a beginner, you can hopefully follow along even as we discuss more complex topics. All right. Yeah. And if you are a listener to the show and newer to investing, you're going to love their their podcast as well. We'll leave a link in the show notes for anyone uh, so you can easily find that. But let me hit the disclosure here. Usually Ryan does it with the guests. So maybe with the audience here, it'll be a little bit tougher, but we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. Ryan and I are general partners at Arch Capital and clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Andrew. And we'll see you all next time.